0: Hello, and welcome back to Automotive EE Systems Revolution, a podcast from the Integrated Electrical Systems Group of Siemens Digital Industry Software. I'm your host, Connor Pike. In our last episode, I talked with Doug Versicki and Dan Scott, two of Siemens' resident experts on automotive electrical systems. We discussed some of the large scale trends currently affecting the automotive industry. In episode two, We continue that discussion with a focus on the impact that the COVID nineteen pandemic has wrought on the auto industry. We also talk about the growing importance of partnerships to automotive OEMs. Doug and Dan offered a lot of great insight on these questions, so without further ado, let's jump into the discussion. I feel it would be almost impossible to have a discussion about industry today as of right now without mentioning the impact of COVID. And Doug already hinted at this, of course, but you know this has driven a lot of companies to change how they're working. And so that must have some impact on plans, what they're developing currently, what they plan on developing in the next couple of years. So just curious what your comments are on, on that situation.
1: Yeah, thanks though. I think it's an interesting one just in terms of It has a massive impact on how things can be developed. Um, I think, you know, for sure it will have an impact on what's developed and the, the sort of scope of things that can be developed. But again, it feels like it, you know, as people are more working from home, as there's less sort of physical face to face time, maybe sort of ongoingly, there's, there's challenges in the organization in terms of just communication stuff. Like I was kind of briefly mentioning in terms of that keeping products being developed in a, in a coherent way. But, but there's just, you know, engineer-to-engineer engineer communication challenges. From a business point of view, it's a really challenging time. And we've obviously seen the sort of full extent of that kind of unwind in the economy of, of the impact of, of COVID and, and knock-on effect of, of that. But inevitably, and, and you know, obviously already you're seeing organisations focusing a lot more on, on efficiencies, needing to, to really be more efficient, do more with the employees that they have. And inevitably, that's that's causing them to, to reflect on ways in which they kind of work. Changes which previously have, have not been, there's not been an imperative to make those because, you know, there's there's been no sort of um, compelling event. Well, now there is a compelling event. There is an absolute need for making the most of of the resources that they have. So, you know, definitely things like being able to collaborate more efficiently more effectively within tools within processes across multiple sites again it's that push towards digitalization I think is going to be a challenge and, and again you know organizations which are more able to do that from from both a you know a process and, and a product and a tool point of view but also a cultural point of view I think those are the ones that are going to really thrive
2: I, I would agree with everything Dan said today he hit most of the the things that I think the the companies are struggled with initially and are figuring out how they're going to deal with long-term, right? And one has to wonder for all these companies, right? One of their biggest expenses is real estate. So if they found that they can be efficient remotely with workers working from home, it's only common sense. They're going to reevaluate their utilization of real estate, right? And if they can save some of that cost, they're going to do that. So I expect, as we all do, that there's going to be a much greater proliferation of remote working, which drives a greater need for effective collaboration tools, as we can all attest to with our experiences using collaboration tools online over the last six months, good and bad. And a lot of the tools that are out there right now have some limited capabilities in that regard, but probably not to the extent that every engineer would like uh, based on their new Reality. So those are areas that I think we'll be focused on as well as industry and and improving and shoring up capabilities. You know, we already enable real time design reviews and and things like that, but there's going to be a greater need for collaboration across these domains. Like I've mentioned a few times. So it's not going to be just engineers on the same team or on the same project, but you know, in the same program and dealing or interfacing with engineers, at least for a period of time that they might not necessarily. Deal with and, and may not know personally in a lot of cases or work in the same region geographically. So those aspects are important. Another thing I think that um, we can have a direct contribution to is the manufacturing layout and efficiencies of some of our customers. You know, they're physically building products based on our designs or designs based uh, on our tools. We can help analyze their assembly process and utilization through that same data set to Make their production process as efficient as possible, so they can eliminate the amount of heads that they have, and hopefully space those heads out as they best they can to meet both the workplace requirements as well as the the product level requirements. So I think those are areas that a lot of manufacturing companies are going to be challenged to uh, overcome in the coming months and potentially years, depending on how things go. There's a lot of uh, unknowns, I think, to come from all of this, but um. I've been encouraged to see what's been capable from our customers and from us, to be honest with you. From a business perspective, I am also encouraged to see that we haven't had a full scale meltdown, economic meltdown. Unfortunately, we have had customers (laughs) that have been negatively impacted, but from an OEM development or design perspective, I haven't seen any slowdown in it's the opposite. It feels like they're putting the gas or their foot on the gas. They're trying to accelerate their developments so that when people are ready to start making purchases again, they have the latest and greatest product out there in the, the dealerships for them to, to come and review and buy. So I, I haven't seen the OEMs really backing off or slowing down, which I think is uh, very encouraging for, for us over the next five to 10 years as we move on, move out of this phase that we're currently in.
0: It's been so interesting to see how people have made these adaptations in just their own personal habits and in their lives and to you know continue working at a high level, even though they're not in the office.
2: One of the points that Dan made was uh, a lot of times people don't make hard decisions until there's a compelling event. It's human nature, right? You don't force or you don't change until you're forced to. Well, like he said, efficiency, efficiency of the workforce, efficiency of operators in the plant. Those all have a direct impact on headcount. And that's obviously a very big concern for any company these days. So that's an area that we can have a direct impact on. And for many of our customers, they have homegrown tool solutions that they've developed and maintained over the years. And they did it for good reason, right? Because there wasn't product out there or they were subject matter experts. And, you know, they had the expertise to develop those solutions based on what their need was at the time. Well, over the years, those homegrown solutions get combined with out-of-the-box configurations. And many of these companies, what we are hearing now over the last three to four months is because they're trying to be more efficient, because they're trying to maximize headcount, they don't want to spend money investing and developing and maintaining tools that are readily available from third-party vendors. So I am seeing a shift there too, where more companies than in the past are at that compelling event. And they're like, you know what, we don't have the headcount, the bandwidth, and strategically it's not in our vision to continue to develop and maintain software tools that you know we can procure and also be supported through subject matter experts so that that's another shift I've seen as well,
1: yeah, I think that's quite an interesting one, Doug, in terms of that, yeah, that kind of people just sort of thinking about that make or buy sort of decision around tooling and and you're right, I think it's it comes from that strategic imperative where the companies are having to really think about. Where do we kind of add value? What, what's the value that our organization can bring? Is it in the tools to help us develop this stuff? Or is it the intellectual property of the harness manufacturing or the, the actual vehicle software itself and the, the features and, and the knowledge about those? And so I think, I think it is, I think you're right. I think it is those sorts of decisions that they're, they're beginning to reevaluate where before they were. Yeah, not necessarily, you know, they were kind of happy with kind of ticking along with some of the inefficiencies that they they kind of had because there's a discomfort in change. Obviously, we kind of all know that. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's now that there's that real doubling down on, okay, let's really ask the hard questions of, of what are the core sort of value propositions that we have as a business? What are the core differentiators? How do we kind of really make the most of those? And some of that is, yeah, actually that that particular aspect, we're going to need to partner with someone or we're going to need to get external support rather than trying to do everything ourselves. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, it's really a, a byproduct or just another example of the evolving value stream. You know, we talk about the yeah. the yeah. business models changing, but the value stream, the business relationships between tier twos and tier ones, tier ones to OEMs is changing as well you know, some tier ones are becoming full system integrators and essentially providing out of the box or off the shelf solution to any OEM that wants to integrate it. And that entirely changes a business model, right? And then other OEMs are like, no, I don't want to rely on a tier one. I'm going to develop that capability 100% in-house, even down to the silicon. So there are changing business models out there and that's causing the, or the suppliers and the, the constituents to evaluate what their value add, As you said, what, what what does my customer value me for? And for a tier one wire harness supplier, it's not for developing software that enables them to develop and design the harness. So it's providing the harness itself in a cost effective, timely manner. So, you know, I think that those discussions are going on and that's a natural byproduct of these companies trying to truly focus on where they can provide value because that's where they get garner their profits from. That's where they differentiate themselves. So, yeah, I I agree with you 100%. Given
0: this shift or or perhaps a focus on where they can add the most value, what, what do you think companies should be looking for in their tools, if that makes
2: sense? This is a word we haven't talked about at all today or a phrase, the digital thread, right? So OEMs clearly are trying to leverage and repurpose data wherever possible because it saves time. It's efficient. It ensures quality and reliability. So I think you're going to see an extension of digital threads within OEMs as we, as they continue to evolve. And what I mean by that is using the same data set throughout a development process and some of them are better than others at it right now. Others still you know, move data from one tool to another as they go through their development process. But I think that will be less and less as we move forward. Especially if you look at the context of a, what we refer to as a software-defined vehicle, you're essentially separating hardware and software. You're separating it from a sourcing perspective as well as a development timing perspective. So you're going to have different groups developing different things that have to come together at exact pieces or points in time. So they have to be working from the same data set. So more and more, you're going to see that. You're going to see it extend into manufacturing. You're going to see it extend into service because a lot of these business models for new OEMs don't have dealerships in their networks, right? The technicians come to your house, so they're going to leverage that digital data set all the way into the field once the vehicles are, are out being driven around by the, the customers. And then all of that data is going to be derived from a common architecture, derived very early up front from the requirements and specifications and constraints of that particular vehicle, whether they're government and regulatory, whether they're uh, determined by the market you're trying to penetrate or the features you're implementing. There's there's always a set of constraints that uh, vehicles are designed around. So those are the... Um, the challenges in the areas that I think the, the companies are going to focus on, but I'm not naive enough to think they're going to buy a solution that does all that from end to end. It's always going to be a myriad of tools and vendors. So from an OEM perspective, integration I think is huge for them. Ease of integration, interoperability between different tools based on the same data sets. At the end of the day, ease of use, right? We want the stuff to be uh, not spend your time learning how to use a tool, spend your time using the tool to make engineering decisions and design improvements.
1: Yeah. I think I'd I'd maybe add just a couple of things to that. I think, yeah, absolutely agree with everything that Doug said. I think, from all of the stuff we've been kind of talking about, I think um, there's a few things that kind of come to mind. What one is just this thing of, of people looking for this comprehensive digital twin, where they're, and that I'm sure will be a whole discussion in itself of what what that kind of means. But really, a digital representation of of every aspect of their their product and the development process and the manufacturing and into service and all of that. But just that whole digitalization of an organization. So they're looking for. From our experience, I think suppliers and, and wanting to partner with organisations that can can really work with them, that can develop tools, and you know that have got a future and have got a breadth. But like Doug says, you know that are not that don't lock you into having to use every single tool from them. You know, so I think that whole openness is really important. Like Doug was saying, being able to integrate, you know, into tools from different domains and different parts of the development flow. So really being able to play a, an active role in an open ecosystem, I think, I think important. And really, you know, people want tools that they can fit to their ways of working rather than you have to sort of change how you work and fit yourself to the tool so i think you know that that element of of sort of flexibility and part of that's an openness thing um but part of it is yeah just a philosophy of a, a, a sort of an underpinning a foundation of of how tools are kind of built in order to really serve the engineers you know cuz you know ultimately it's the engineers and it's it's the guys and, and women and people developing these these products that bring the innovation bring the creativity bring the new new designs and, and, and new stuff into the to these businesses and what you want is for the sort of tools to augment them and to, to make that process easy for them so I think organizations are looking for for, for companies that that can partner with them to, to really provide provide tools that, that help them do that and that work with them and, and put them first really
2: right, that's a great I just want to reiterate that Dan used the word twice and I don't think you could state it enough. Partner. It's a partnership. That's uh, He's spot yeah. on. They are living, really They don't true. want a supplier. They don't want someone to sell them something. They want a partner to, to work with because one of the beauties of the landscape that, that we deal with is it's constantly evolving and changing and you're never done developing those tools and their needs are constantly evolving. So that's why they want a partnership. They don't want a vendor and that's what we offer.
0: We wanted to touch on the topic of partnerships in the automotive industry and how they are becoming potentially more critical to sort of success in the future. And I wanted to to get your guys' thoughts on why partnerships throughout the value chain and even between really stiff competition, why they're becoming perhaps
2: more frequent and more important. Probably one word that could summarize it is necessity. I think that it's highly unlikely and in most cases impossible for any company to take on all the respective challenges that they have singularly. It's a different world these days. they got challenges coming at them from all angles, whether they're internal, organizational challenges, whether they're external from a competitor, or it's just a matter of staying on top of uh, product development life cycles and matching those with consumer desires and needs and trends. So you see that happening because, you know, financially it's needed companies can't invest in technology so they find technology partners to work with in some cases those technology partners are also uh you know financial bets some of the oems have invested in technology partners that they've benefited from greatly financially so it's uh you know broadening of their portfolio in a different sense and we've talked about that a lot right about Business models of companies changing and it's not uncommon for OEMs to have venture capital funds and investment firms that are uh, dedicated towards investing in partners and technologies that could benefit their broader portfolio. You know, and, and there's also partnerships with the academia, right? You see a lot of these technologies are cutting edge. They're not ready to be commercialized or take to market. There's, they're still in their true R&D phase and companies are investing in universities and academia to perform a lot of the that research because they don't have the means and wherewithal, whether it's technical or, or just knowledge based to do that themselves, I think you see a greater prevalence of that going on these days. And it, it's paying dividends as well, I think. And then, you know, an area where we Siemens, where we take great pride in is, you know, we don't want to just treat our customers as as customers, where it's a transactional-based relationship. The the companies that leverage and benefit from our capabilities the most are the ones that continuously work with us. Our product is very unique in the sense that it addresses multiple aspects of vehicle and electrical architecture development, but it's not a finished product and it's never used the same in any two applications. So we evolve that product based on the customer needs and use cases. And we value tremendously customers that can provide insight and guidance on those use cases just as much as they value our incorporating that guidance into the product roadmaps. Again, our best relationships are the symbiotic ones where we work together with customers as true partners, not as customers and suppliers.
1: I think it's interesting. I think there's that necessity thing, isn't there, that you are talking about that is important. You know, particularly in the, con- the sort of world context we're kind of in at the moment. I guess a couple of thoughts on that, really. I think certainly the sort of partnering with Siemens is an interesting one because you know it does go back to that companies wanting to focus on where do they add the most value, and that's not necessarily developing software to develop their products, which are cars or you know whatever heavy equipment or, or whatever it happens to be. So I think the nature of the relationships, the business relationships is changing and and I think people are wanting longer term kind of partnerships where where there is that kind of mutual trust, where there's a, a sense of, you know, we're not just here to sell you our stuff and see you later, but it's they're looking for, you know, tools, they're looking for support with processes, they're looking for consulting, they're looking for services, they're looking for, can you help us deploy things? And that's not just for our products, you know, they're looking for companies as well that they have a bigger picture, they have a bigger vision that want to support or are able to support companies across not just the electrical, not just the embedded software, but into simulation, into manufacturing, into service, into, you know, all of the different sort of test aspects that we support, mechanical design, you know, all of the different bits and aspects which Siemens are able to support, I think... Even if companies don't buy every single bit of software that Siemens has, I think the benefit of working with somebody like Siemens is that we at least have an understanding of that big picture, of how all of the different bits interconnect. You know, as they kind of buy different bits and pieces of of stuff from us, that we can kind of integrate that better into a full float so that customers can get the best value out of it. So I think that's one aspect of partnerships. The other one, just quickly, is just around the pace of change of technology is so fast nowadays that I think it's really hard for companies to stay on top of it in-house with their skills. And so I think there's an inevitable kind of need to partner more and be better at partnering with different companies, with universities, with startups, with, you know, various of actors within the whole sort of space. So I think, you know, all of this kind of makes it a really dynamic time and interesting time for automotive, I think.
0: I was just trying to think of a maybe about a real world because obviously this is all stuff in the real world but a, a more personal maybe a analogy <laughs> for a good partner and the one that I came up with was like a relationship with a good barber except in this case, your barber is also like a personal trainer and an accountant and you know a life coach and they can really help in you know helping you to improve in all aspects that are relevant.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's right. Analogy aside, I think the, the the discussions we have with many of our partners are around just where are they struggling the most at that point in time? What are their biggest challenges are? You know, we can focus on those and more often than not rectify or if not tremendously improve that aspect of their workflow or their process. I guess really what partnership to do across the board is you're hedging your risk, right? You're you're distributing that amongst a broader team of subject matter experts or resources, whether they're knowledge or financial or capacity in some cases. But, you know, those partnerships theoretically make all the parties stronger. But as we all know, they don't always work out right. So that's a challenge is, is figuring out who to partner with and who not to. You know, some OEMs have been very aggressive in different areas. Some OEMs have been very aggressive as of late and they've basically invested in uh, multiple areas in a certain point in time where in a very short order they've closed technology gaps or business model gaps or go-to-market gaps that you know they didn't have to invest organically and create from the ground up. So, you know, if you look at a technology field, you know, such as autonomous vehicles, tremendous amount of research and development and just pure engineering grunt work has to make that a reality. But it's still unproven what the financial return is. So we've talked about it a lot. You know, these companies don't exist to, you know, have fun. I mean, they want to enjoy what they're doing, but they're they're out there to make money and they're there to make money for their shareholders in most cases. So how do you invest billions of dollars in An area or technology, you may not see any revenue or return from for up to a decade or more. That's a hard ask, especially for someone who has shareholders that are expecting returns now. So, one way is to go out there and invest or buy technology, develop technology that prevents you from having to do that. But still, even when you make those big investments, you know you expect a return on it and. I've actually, you know, you see a lot of those partnerships evolving. Uh, Over the last five years, I'd say the majority of those tech tie-ups in the auto space were all around autonomous vehicles. Now it's almost flipped 100% where you hear more and more and more about the EV and the electrification tie-ups going on in that space because there is revenue tied to it. So you're seeing those investments shift right now a bit. But again, it's all predicated on the partnership topic that you brought up. Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you brought up the kind of shift because
0: I remember hearing about, I think it was Mercedes and BMW that teamed up with the goal of developing autonomous vehicles. But then more recently, of course, we've heard about all the Rivian partnerships that we've talked about with Ford and Amazon, but then even Ford and and Volkswagen partnering on the electric vehicle front to use the Volkswagen platform, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I think the partnership thing is interesting as well, kind of, you know, not going back necessarily to the barber analogy, but going to the. You didn't like of, that analogy? <laughs> no, it's, I just don't have that close a relationship with my barber, I guess. <laughs> Fair it's, enough. What, maybe, maybe that's it. <laughs> just the in terms of the partnerships thing, I was thinking about just the cultural aspect to it in terms of, you know, we talked about some that work, some that didn't work, get dissolved, some that are going great guns. You know, going back to that, having a, a cultural fit with organisations, having aligned goals that you, you're wanting to to achieve, aligned timescales, you know, compatible sort of resources, and you could imagine a, an analogy of it being like dating and like you know trying to find someone that you actually really kind of mesh with. And you know, certainly from scanning the news and looking at you know over the last couple of years, I think it tends to be those those ones that are successful that have those underlying a better cultural fit. In all aspects, as well as just, you know, obviously there's a technology angle to it as well, but it's, it's back to those organizational things we were talking about in the last episode or a couple of episodes ago.
0: It involves knowledge as well, right? I mean, who has the expertise? If you're looking for a partner, you want someone who is an expert in whatever area you're trying to either improve or to sort of bring into your realm of capabilities,
2: a true partnership makes both parties stronger, right? right. So, so yeah, I mean, they should be complementary and fill value gaps that the other one would have without the two of them working together. And if you can have and structure successfully those types of partnerships, that's where you're going to have the most success. It doesn't do any good for uh, one partner to dominate a relationship. Really, long, long-term long it doesn't, short-term it might, but then it just becomes transactional and it's not a partnership.
0: As if a once-in-a-generation upheaval in automotive technology and business models wasn't enough, 2020 has also brought the immense challenges of a global pandemic to bear on the industry. In this episode, we talked about how these challenges have affected automotive manufacturers, as well as some of the steps that they can take to respond. Doug and Dan both hit on the importance of building a comprehensive digital twin during vehicle development and of fostering partnerships with technology companies, suppliers, and even other OEMs. These strategies are not only helpful for adapting vehicle development and manufacturing to the constraints of COVID-19, they also provide key advantages for companies as they develop the advanced vehicles of tomorrow, whether they are gas or electric, autonomous or human-driven. In the next episode, Doug, Dan, and I will take a more detailed look at how automotive product development is changing. Until then, this has been Automotive EE Systems Revolution. Doug, Dan, myself, and the whole IES team would like to thank you very much for listening, and we hope that you will join us again next time.